Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. We're going to read the entire chapter, and that'll be our course of study this morning. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, the author of Esther writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away 
and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Please grant your spirit to come now and set the truth within our hearts and make us to be a people like Esther becomes, like Mordecai becomes, those who will stand upon the word of God, those who will believe with conviction, those who will live and die for your glory and for the good of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies is Gladiator. And one of his great scenes occurs in the Colosseum. Maximus has led his band of gladiators to an unexpected victory, which draws out the emperor who wants to honor the victor. He knows the man, but doesn't recognize him for his mask. When he asks him his name, Maximus gives him his back. He shows his back to the emperor, and this enrages the emperor, and it brings him to demand that he reveal himself. And so Maximus reveals himself, and when he does, the emperor is brought face to face with his enemy, who also happens to be the hero in the story. While the emperor set on death, then the crowd's been won to the hero's side so that the emperor, his name was Commodus, finds himself in a bit of a pickle. He puts out his hand, as emperors would. Thumbs down means death. Thumbs up means life. And he so badly wants to go thumbs down, doesn't he? He so badly wants to condemn him. He just wants the crowd's approval more. And so against every fiber of his being, thumbs up, it is. Mercy is begrudgingly extended. Now, as Christians, uh, we're called to walk as children of light. Uh, Once we were darkness, once we loved to hide, But now we're light in the Lord. We don't just walk in the light. We are light, Paul says in Ephesians 5. It's entirely against our new nature and call to be undercover Christians. To have a concealed identity. To blend in with the world. To mask or unmask? That is the question this morning. Christians, I want us to hear... Christians are to be obviously so. Jesus hasn't saved us and collected us to be indistinguishable from the unsaved and the scattered. When He called us, He put the cross in front of us and said, take it up and follow Me. In effect, live no longer for the thumbs up of the world, but for the thumbs up of God, even if it results in the thumbs down of the world. Real Christianity is seen in the growing resolve to identify in practice with Christ and Him crucified. It's seen in our aligning ourselves publicly with God 
and with his people when it's costly to do so. And so when brought to these crossroads of compromise and conviction to decide for what is good and what is right and what is true, and at the end of the day, if I perish, I perish. And I go to be with the Lord forever. Do those around us know that we belong to Jesus? The world wants us to think such obviousness weird and strange. It needs to be hidden, your faith. It needs to be private, kept private, if kept at all. But the Bible, the Bible wants us to think such hiddenness weird, strange. It calls visible Christianity typical Righteous, the very thing Christ said to make our lives and our deaths about. Well, let's come to Esther 4. In the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the morning of the Jewish nation in light of the truth. And what is that? What is the truth? Well, according to the acclaimed documentary, Veggie Tales, If I've got this right, Haman's banished Mordecai to where? The island of perpetual tickling. Which sounds positively awful in its own right. But no, we know it's the publishing of an edict decreeing and incentivizing the worldwide genocide of the Hebrew people. Just because we're a good news people in an evil news world doesn't mean we're impervious to experiencing such evil. Just that as we're targets of it, we've been enabled to respond to it in hopeful ways. We grieve, but what does the Scripture tell us? We do not grieve as those do who have no hope in God. And the difference is typified for us in verses 1 through 3. Here's a truth. Unfathomable evil has just befallen God's Old Testament people. Also truth, that evil is not sovereign. Our God is. He's delivered us before. So let us seek Him here. Let us seek Him now. Let us seek Him again. Mordecai learns of this decree. It seems he's holding a a tear-soaked copy of it in his trembling hands. And he sets it aside and then he just tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He walks into the midst of the city and gives out a loud and bitter cry. There is so much pain for God's people in the city of man. Torn hearts, deathly sorrows, lonely walks, bitter providences. How thankful I am then to know a king who invites us to himself, as we just sang, come as you are. Do you see the prohibition in verse 2? Mordecai went to the king's gate, but he couldn't enter. Why not? Because you weren't allowed to be sad in the presence of that king. What a sad kingdom that demands happy faces from hurting citizens. Smiles from those it stabbed straight in the heart. 
Right? This king and sympathy are not simpatico. Very much ahead of his time, this king, Ahasuerus, prefers to construct his own reality in which everything is peaches and cream all the time. He's a pioneer in the delirium of the power of positive thinking. He's a narcissist who shields himself from the pains of his people lest their troubles get in the way of his groove. Anybody ever watch the emperor's new groove? Beware of the groove, right? And no one on this side knows what I just referred to. As we see in Christ, God is not a king like this. He's a king who delights to be the shield and support of his people. A king whose groove is to prove his love and care for bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. Well, that's Mordecai and the entire Jewish nation. And knowing the truth, they begin to engage really in the first explicitly religious activity in the story. You see it nestled there in amongst their sorrow in a book that is known for all of the feasting going on here. And in fact, on the eve of the Passover feast, what do they begin to do? They begin to fast. Beloved, this world has a way of insulating and numbing us to biblical priorities and true spiritual affections. Right? To our hurt, it invites us to make ourselves at home, to cozy up, to, to blend in, to atrophy by apathy, to, to lose our urgency, to play the fool, to live below the sun. There's nothing over it as if this is all there were. So praise God for the pain that awakens us to reality. Praise God for the waves, as one said, that cast us again upon the rock that is higher than we are. That shocks us again into spiritual sobriety and reality. And sets us to seeking Him and seeking His vast array of covenant mercies. Beloved, by fasting, we acknowledge this is not our home. This is not our home. We seek the city that is to come and cast ourselves upon the provision of God in that pursuit. Fasting sobers us to just how fragile we are, but also how invincible He is. It heightens the sense we should live with that we don't live by bread alone, but by every Word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting rubs off the calluses of our hearts so we can feel things most important again. It's not about gaining God's favor, twisting His arm. We already have His favor in Christ. It's not about forcing God's hand. He loves us. His hands are always outstretched. Fasting is about ousting. Basic life helps to know afresh He is all our life. And here, under the decree of death, Israel earnestly pursues 
that realization again. In some sense, what we're seeing is the revitalization of a people who have been spiritually comatose to God. As Zach read for us in the call to worship, they're not just rending their garments. What are they rending? They're rending their hearts. They're rending their hearts in the hope that as it said in that passage in Joel, God will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him. This is about their need for God to show up for His glory. Are we sensitive to that need in our lives? Are we consistently rending our hearts? As we're able, do we fast? Have you ever fasted in your life? As Jesus assumes His people will. Are we seeking to live upon God? Specifically, do we handle adversity by placing ourselves first and foremost in God's hands? Do we identify as God's people in this way? This is an important turn in the story for us. Mordecai, we might call him Mr. Concealment, is now visibly hoping in the Lord. What about Esther? What about Esther? Well, we come to verse 4. And things inside the palace. They find that her confidants have alerted her to Mordecai's public lamentation at the king's gate. And we're told that this deeply distresses her. The thing is, her deep distress, we, we need to note, isn't really over the trial that's facing the Jewish people. She doesn't know anything about that yet. It's legitimately just over Mordecai's sorrow, whatever the cause may be. I just want you to see what she does here. She sends him garments, apparently, to cover up his true condition. It's to conceal how he really feels. It's to put on a happy face. It's to look as that king commands. Right? So she may feel deeply for him, but she does not deeply identify with him. There is a difference. When she should grieve with those who grieve, she seeks rather to move him past his grief superficially before he's ready to move on. Beloved, see how if we give the world the time of day, it will take our souls. See how a string of compromises can saturate us completely. See how it's hard to be far from God's people and still identify with them in their pain. See how five years in a Persian palace routinely separated from them can stifle compassion, can short-circuit sympathy, can blind us to things that are worthy of our regular lamentation. Beloved, we live in a fallen world. I mean, is her response initially any different than what Ahasuerus requires? up that sad face. The forgery of joy 
the forgery of all is well with the world, peaches and cream. When I was a younger Christian, I attended family events marked by lamentable things. Practical atheism, relatives mired in the world, the celebration, but emptiness and brokenness of sin, dulled by mindless debauchery. And it broke my heart. Every time I was in that setting, I was sad. And discerning my frame, a well-meaning relative would come to me and she would try to cheer me up, not by identifying with me, not by trying to understand my sorrow, but by ironically making light of it. You're always so sad. What's going on there? Well, as much as I love them, they simply lacked eyes to see or ears to hear because they were one with the world. And the world sees no problem with the things that grieve the heart of Jesus. You hear that? The world discerns no problem with the things that bother the heart of Jesus. Esther may be well-meaning here, but she's also quite calloused here. And Mordecai makes this plain by his response. He refuses her out-of-touch comforts. Now watch what happens, though. By the grace of God, she is moved to get more in touch with reality. She calls for Hathak. Praise God for him, this eunuch who acts as a reliable intermediary of very sensitive content between the two of them. By him, Esther now asks the what and the why. What is this? Why is it? And Mordecai's answer, you see, in verses 7 and 8. In sum, he clarifies for Esther that on account of his conscience as a freshly believing Jewish man, Haman the Agagite has conspired by lies and the love of money to rid the world of all Jewish people whatsoever. And as I infer in verse 14, the promises of God here are on the line. Her people, Mordecai says, her people. Note that identification, are under the unjust sentence of death, it would seem, without hope. Remember, Haman is the second most powerful person in the world. And the most powerful person in the world was gullible enough to sign away his signet ring to this enemy of the Jews. Who then can stand in his way? Who can appeal the king for mercy and actually draw it out? Who can draw out a 180 degree turn of Haman's death decree on account of Mordecai's quote-unquote transgression? Who is in the place to be this instrument in the Redeemer's hands? Mordecai believes it's Esther. The question is, will Esther believe that? Will Esther stand up and in for God's people? Formerly, right, she's obeyed Mordecai in everything. But will she, as he commands her, to this? Will she embrace the cost of true obedience? 
She's obeyed him when she probably should not have obeyed him. Will she obey him when she most certainly should? Will Esther come out of hiding? Will Esther come out of her Persian world in clear alignment with God and his people? Just because obedience to God should be automatic does not mean it's always cleared of roadblocks, obstacles. And here Esther is, again, initially hesitant. Conceal, no problem. No problem with that whatsoever. Immediate obedience. Reveal. You've got to think about that for a second. Hold your horses. Whom shall we fear, brothers and sisters? Well, Esther's understandably afraid of this king. And she's afraid of the consequences of a conscience that is ruled by conviction. The king is not a just man. He's a man with a hot temper who is driven by his latest lusts. Esther is aware of what happened to Vashti when she was disobedient to his summons. Will that happen to Esther if she disobeys by going to this king without a summons? As mentioned, you can't even enter his gate in a mournful state. And will she now enter his presence in the inner court to plead mercy over her people's mournful state? And to that, there's really already a law, isn't there? You don't go to the king uninvited without placing your life in his demonstrably merciless hands. It is a pitch black heart that holds that golden scepter of life. Maybe you think, okay, but she's the king's favorite. Not if that second gathering of virgins in chapter 2, verse 19 has anything to say about it. She's not gone into the king in a month. She's not gone into the king in 30 days. And as one put it, we all know this king does not sleep alone. So whatever pull Esther had, it appears she's lost. It's not like they're snuggling in front of the fire every night while enjoying real talk till the break of day as mutually edifying lovebirds. Esther is on the outs. Oh, how the world, oh, how the world demands so much and promises so much and gives so little in return and nothing that stands the test of time. And eternity. But the point to see is it's never easy, it's never easy to do what's right in a wrong world. It's never easy to be God's person in a world that prefers to play God. Well, discerning her apprehension, Mordecai makes his redemptive, historically significant pitch. 
in verses 13 and 14. In essence, it's this. You're a Jewish person. You're a Jewish person that's part of a bigger story here. And who knows? Who knows? But you have a leading role to play. Now, in saying what he should have said to her from the start, he doesn't pull his punches here. As a recently repenting father to a presently disoriented daughter, he shoots straight with her. Esther, you need to speak up for us as one of us. No, this king's palace is no refuge for God's people. And on matters like this, neither is the silence that shouts of compromise. The Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. Take heart in God and speak up for His people. If you don't, I just want you to hear this, if you don't, relief and deliverance will still come from another place, he says. But maybe, just maybe, Esther, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you see what Mordecai does? He says, God's going to win regardless. That's an amazing statement coming from that man as we've come to know him. God's going to win regardless. He always has won. So link arms with him. Link arms with his people. Be a part of something bigger. Mordecai has learned how to read the providential tea leaves. And helping her is what he's doing now to situate her life within the grand scheme of redemption. Despite their moral character, these things, your rise, this moment, are not without divine order, guidance, and purpose. It's all of the Lord. It's all of the Lord. Embrace it, Esther. It's time for you to unmask. Beloved, is this how we understand the various aspects of our lives? Grasping providence will give and solidify purpose in your life. That we live, and when we live, and where we live, and what we do, none of that is random. None of that is random. All the things that make you you have been orchestrated by God for advancing His saving purpose, for advancing His kingdom in this time, in this culture, in this society, at this very moment. Is it with this in view that our eyes open up in the morning? God's given me today to be a human agent of His truth and His grace to these children, to this church, to these neighbors of mine, to these co-workers of mine, to these strangers that I bump into along the way today, to this set, in this set of opportunities. Dear ones, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2, but that we are God's, quote, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in them at the present time. That we should step into them, thumbs up or thumbs down, as Christians. New creatures in Christ. We should be regularly asking ourselves, given all the circumstances of my life, realizing the divine design of them, how am I to be? How can I be of greatest service for the gospel of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And to have a sense of purposeful urgency about it. Tomorrow is not promised. Tomorrow is not promised. We have this time, this moment. The time God's given is getting shorter. So we need to live with some gospel intentionality. Well, Esther's risen before in more unseemly ways. Will she rise now in a godly one? This is her moment of truth. A salvation critical decision waits in the space between verse 14 and verse 15. The salvation of the entire Jewish nation. Ultimately, our salvation in Christ. Perhaps it seems even Esther's own salvation. It is a hugely pregnant moment. Will she decide against the world? Will she decide against the world's comforts? Against its dark kingdom? Against her cover? Will she decide against herself and openly, sacrificially, and boldly align with God, His comforts, His kingdom, His cover, His people? We know, don't we? Such a wonderful moment. (laughs) By the grace of God, alone, Esther will unmask. She will identify fully with God. His people will be hers. Identifiably so. And for them, she will do His bidding. She will live for God's smile. She'll hope in God and take up her cross and attempt to be what her people need her to be. Do you see all this in verse 16? It is stunning. Her heart is turned. She who would stop Mordecai from all this mourning and fasting now calls for fasting. She who lived the palace life will now forego life's supports, listen, for three days. She who was successfully integrated as a Persian, so successfully integrated that she went undetected as a Hebrew woman for five years, will now be boldly Hebrew. She who suppressed true beauty in order to win the king's favor will now suppress her physical beauty by fasting and go before the king in God's kind of beauty. She then, who trusted before in her figure and her wit and her charm, will now trust in nothing but God alone. 
She who desired safety, even if it meant compromise and sin, is now willing to be God's sacrificial lamb to save His people. I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Welcome home. Welcome back, Hadassah. Or perhaps... It's more to the glory of God to continue on with Esther. It reminds us that what sin, Satan, and the world thought it had claimed for itself, God redeemed for Himself. What testimonies to the power of grace do our sinful backstories offer? What a Savior we have who in the course of a conversation, though all the world is opposed to it, can win our hearts to Himself and to the way of the cross. Remarkable. And, parents, a word. Is there not massive encouragement here as we seek amid all our sins and mistakes to lead our children to a bold faith in Christ and an abiding love for his people. Esther's world was not kind of faith. It wanted to kill God's people. She was as confused and compromised as ever, and Mordecai was no model father. But he turned, and he talked to her, and he persevered, in that conversation, and God acted in His incredible, amazing grace, and Esther was transformed. Massive encouragement to keep on evangelizing your children. Like Nicodemus, she comes out of the shadows and publicly identifies, as it were, with Christ and Him crucified. If I perish, I perish. Speaking of Christ, let's talk defining moments. You and me and our cross-bearing mediator for a moment. At the right time, knowing exactly what it would entail, God sent His Son into the city of man. But whereas Esther would prove hesitant about the mere possibility of perishing in advocacy of her people, Jesus came precisely to perish in order to save His people, not just from the wrath of a man, but from the wrath of God. That was His purpose, and He did not flinch in the least. He set His face like Flint, it says, toward the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember the prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. And when, like Esther, he asked his friends to watch and pray and do something for me, to help me, his friends, unlike her friends, chose to snore. He had no help. When he came, not just to symbolize three days of death before an attempt to save many Jewish lives, but to be dead 
for three days, having laid down his life to save innumerable souls for all eternity from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Esther may have been best suited to successfully intercede with the king for God's people, but according to Mordecai, we might say she wasn't the only option. She could come from somewhere else, he says. There is, however, only one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man, Christ Jesus. And how wonderful is he? How wonderful is he? How loving, how welcoming, how accessible, how unlike Ahasuerus. Jesus abides in the real world. In coming to Him, you don't have to dry your tears. (laughs) You don't have to look your best. You don't have to put on a show of worthiness. You don't have any. You don't have to fear his sight of your spiritual ugliness. That's what draws him to you. He just says, come as you are. Come as you are. There's nothing you can hide that I can't see. And seeing it offers still to cleanse you and to clothe you in my perfect righteousness. At the end of the day, I am the Savior of sinners. After all. So friend, this is your defining moment. Unbelieving friend. There's no salvation in the king's palace. The world offers no refuge from God. But amazingly, God does at the cross. God does in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Jesus would, I will now ask you to take up your cross and follow him. Repent of your sins and trust in him. Come and talk to me about it afterwards. Now church, by God's grace, that is what we have done. We've taken up our crosses and we have decided to follow Jesus. And in doing it, we've gained a new life full of defining moments. Or we might say mission-critical decisions at any moment. Which is why it's so important that we, like Esther, see and embrace the purpose that providence preaches. And it will often be difficult particularly if the time and place in which we live is increasingly and manifestly hostile to Jesus. And yet, this chapter says, that's the calling. That's the privilege. That's the beauty available in every providence, sweet or bitter. It's to live in the open field for Jesus. It's to bring all To serve Him. It's to stand at the crossroads of compromise and conviction and select conviction even if it means the cross. If I perish, I perish. Practically then, perhaps, perhaps, it means you lose a job in a lab because you won't compromise on using the cells of aborted children for research. Or, You lose credibility in the educational community because you won't compromise on the inerrancy of God's Word. Or you need to quit a job because you won't compromise your integrity for unjust gain. 
Or you need to risk peace by gently holding a friend accountable for their sins because you won't compromise on being a friend. Or you have to forfeit some favor in class or some favor in school or some popularity in whatever the meeting may be because you won't compromise on things like gender and sexuality and having a thinking brain. Or you have to brave the anger of a lost soul because you won't compromise on the Great Commission. You can't, you won't, you refuse to be silent. Whatever it is, there's a decision to make in service of God's kingdom. And we need to learn how to make them with increasing regularity. We need to live for God's thumbs up. Even if it results in the world's thumbs down. And we can do it knowing Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. Esther had not seen the king in 30 days. And so she says, listen, I could go, but my intercession is going to be tenuous. Don't know if it's going to work out. Jesus, having died and risen and ascended, never ceases to be before the face of our Father. On our behalf, His intercession is perpetually triumphant. And He offers it as one who, being perfectly sympathetic with our weaknesses in general, is just so with our weakness in that moment of decision. He identifies with us as He prays for us. And He prays for us then as one who is fully able to hold us fast when perhaps we want to run away and hide. To mask or unmask. That was the question. And to it, Jesus is always the answer. I am the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And so, as he says, we're to be his city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We're to trade out baskets for stands. And come what may, if I perish, I perish. We're just to shine away for Jesus. Oh Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow Thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, Thou from hence, my all shalt be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought and hoped and known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. Go then, earthly fame and treasure, come, disaster, scorn, and pain, in thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. And Esther, with all God's people said, 
Ain't that the truth? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. From beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation. And here in Esther as well. Please help us. Help us now. Perhaps we have been hiding in some way. We've blended in in some way. We've become like the world around us. We've been compromising. Please draw us by your marvelous love and grace out of that. Help us to become more like what you have made Esther here. To stand upon the word of truth. And to live out loud, boldly, in the light for you. Please help us. Carry us. Hold us fast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.